Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where all the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now that you have all heard the blasphemy, what do you think? He is worthy of death, they all answered. Then, They spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. Good morning. We're going to spend some time now meditating on that trial of Jesus. Following the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew's Gospel records for us how Caiaphas the high priest now takes charge of things. And we're going to reflect together on what we've just heard. Various people trying to make accusations against Jesus. And the high priest finally confronting him. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, you have said so. What does that mean? You have said so. Does that mean yes or no or something more? Well, we get a little clue about what this means by going a bit earlier into the story. At the Last Supper with the Twelve, Jesus had been sitting and sharing food. And at one point, he says in Matthew's Gospel, one of you will betray me. And Judas asks, is it I, Master? Jesus replies, you have said so. This same phrase is used twice in this short passage, you have said so. And it's an indirect way of saying yes, 
and at the same time calling our attention to what the other person really knows is going on deep down inside. Calling our attention to the fact that the betrayer and the accuser, even in their very actions leading towards Jesus' death, are acknowledging his true identity. In some deep way, even those who betray and accuse know who Jesus is. You have said so. And what is that true identity? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Your words reveal something deep within you that is being concealed, even perhaps being concealed from yourself. You have said so means in in some way you know the answer to your own question. You know and see that it is so, and perhaps you fear that Jesus is the Christ. You ask defensively and skeptically, but your heart reveals that you have seen it, and now you are saying so. Jesus' identity matters so much. It really matters if he's God or if he's just some other prophetic chancer. If he is God with us, his death by crucifixion will be literally earth-shattering. His death by crucifixion will be seismic. It will be epoch-shaping since he will be God righting the wrongs of this world, creating the possibility of forgiveness, of new life in our sin-scarred, broken world. His death will be eternity-shaping since his death by crucifixion will have not just an impact on all of humanity for all time, new life for today in this life, but eternal life, life beyond the grave, bliss and rest, beauty and comfort instead of despair in the life to come. Jesus' identity matters. After all, If he is not God with us, his crucifixion is simply a sad footnote in history. One of hundreds of thousands of people who died by crucifixion in a cruel period of history. Probably a decent person, perhaps a death we might feel mildly sad about or interested in, but not a thing of significance. Jesus' identity matters and it massively bears on what his death will mean. Caiaphas asks him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, and how does he follow through? He says, you have said so, but then he goes on. He says, you have said so, but the time is coming when you will see. You've said it but one day you will see it. I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Three things Jesus says, the high priest and we will see. Three turnaround truths that even in his trial, Jesus is pointing us towards to see. Listen carefully. The high priest will see them and we will see them. Firstly, we will see the son of man. Do you know what that term means? Jesus is referring to a prophecy in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Daniel, where Daniel saw one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, having authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is everlasting, and his kingdom can never be destroyed." 
There is absolute clarity here in who Jesus is claiming to be. He himself is that son of man. He has authority, glory and sovereignty. He is to be worshipped. And Jesus is saying at his trial, you may deny that I am the Christ, but the truth is that I'm vastly more than the Messiah you were expecting. It may appear now that I have no kingdom, no glory, no dominion while I suffer, but I say to you, you will see, we will see Jesus in glory and majesty, worthy of our adoration. That's the first turnaround. The second turnaround is that the Son of Man is seated. Jesus is implying in this court of religious authorities, you say that I'm on trial here, that you are sitting in judgment over me and I stand as the defendant. But I say to you, you will see the Son of Man seated. In the days of his suffering, Jesus was made to stand He was the accused. He was charged and found guilty, sentenced to death though he had done nothing wrong. But there is coming another turnaround. The Son of Man will be seated and he will not be the defendant on that day. Jesus is showing us that he's willingly laying down his life for us, even at his trial by standing as a defendant. Jesus, who has glory, authority and power, who is perfectly just and kind and true, who has the right to be sitting at the right hands of the Father, is prepared to stand as a defendant before an unjust judge for us. And thirdly, the third thing we will see, Jesus says to the high priest, you say that I'm to be killed, that I'm to be sentenced to death. You wish to do away with me, to make an end to me, and I'm willingly going to the cross. But I say to you, things are not all that they seem. You will not make an end of me. You will see the Son of Man alive and coming on the clouds of heaven. Even in the trial before his crucifixion, Jesus is promising his resurrection. There's absolute clarity as to Jesus' identity here in this trial. He himself is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He has authority, glory, sovereignty. He is to be worshipped and he willingly stands as the defendant in this unjust trial for our sake. The high priest Caiaphas at the end of this passage asks the key question, a question that we, the readers and listeners, are left with. What do you think? What do you think? Those who saw Jesus as a blasphemer or a fake realised that he posed a huge threat and they thought by killing him they could prove him wrong. But of course, The very reason he came was to die. What do you think? On Good Friday, let's reflect on Jesus, the one who is the Son of God, the one who is the Son of Man, God in the flesh, entering the world he created for love of us, willing to stand trial unjustly, willing to go to the cross for love of us. What do you think? Let's bow our heads in prayer for a moment. 
Lord Jesus Christ, today we remember you. We remember the way you set your face towards the cross, willingly, not reluctantly. The Son of God, the Son of Man, prepared to stand trial in our place and ultimately to die for us. Thank you for that amazing love. Amen. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and the whole company of soldiers gathered round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Then they spat at him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him and then led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Now when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down they kept watch over him there. And above his head was placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. So following the trial of Jesus, he's first taken to be mocked and beaten. He is stripped and dressed in scarlet and then crowned with thorns. The emperor wore a crown of laurels and so this twisted crown of thorns for the king of the Jews was the perfect symbol of their total scorn for him. But of course, there's a prophetic significance of thorns. In the book of Genesis, thorns were the physical sign in the material world of the brokenness and the pain of this world. And now, here they are, pressed down onto Jesus' brow as he is about to carry that very pain, sin, and brokenness of this world on his shoulders on the cross. And Matthew says this simple phrase, when they crucified him. The practicality of God's love 
for us is shown in this passage as Jesus endures the most horrific pain known to man in the presence of people jeering and mocking him and throwing obscene insults at him. And as we hear the account of what happened, it's, it's difficult to really take in how truly horrendous this is. Jesus endures the horrors of crucifixion in order to demonstrate his love for us, to suffer the pain and agony of this material world for us who live in this physical world. He doesn't experience deliverance from the agony of the cross precisely because he's dying in order to deliver us. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion as a method of execution, but they did perfect it and use it extensively. Ancient sources say that uh, the ancients considered death by crucifixion to not just be any execution, but to be the most obscene, disgraceful and horrific execution known to people. The Romans reserved it only for those who didn't have the privileges of Roman citizenship. And Jesus died in that way for us. The Roman statesman Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty The Jewish historian Josephus, who witnessed many crucifixions himself, called it the most wretched of deaths. And the Roman jurist Julius Paulus listed crucifixion in first place as the worst of all capital punishments, listing it ahead of death by burning, by beheading, or death by wild beasts. And from Seneca, we have this quotation, one of the most unique descriptions of crucifixion in non-biblical literature. This is what he wrote. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree? Long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, drawing the breath of life and long, drawn-out agony. He would have many excuses for dying, even before mounting the cross. The practicality of God's love for us, this, this concept we speak of, The practicality of that true idea is that Jesus is prepared to endure the most horrific pain known to man in order to demonstrate, to show, to prove, to reveal his love for us. To suffer for us as well as with us in this physical material world that you and I know and experience. And so the Christian accounts of crucifixion dwell in the physical details of what Jesus experienced, the blood and the guts of the cross. Now, of course, the burden of the cross was primarily the spiritual work of Jesus' death, his work of expiation, carrying away the burden of our sins and the darkness that we all know and experience, and propitiation, paying the debts that we owe, taking the just consequences of our failings and brokenness. But that sacrifice that is wonderfully theological happens in the context of the material, physical world, our world, the real world. 
Jesus actually suffered in his body for us. The physical pain may not be the primary or the only reality, but it is a reality. And so today, on Good Friday, we remember it. We look into the eyes and see the pain of the crucified man. And this is not some religious painting or image or homage. This is God in the flesh. God with us. God on the cross. The great theologian John Stott put it like this. He said, I never could myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He goes on, I've entered many Buddhist temples in Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, he writes, I've had to turn away and and in imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorns, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. The Bible talks of God being love. And a loving person is with us in our pain. If you've ever lost someone close to you, you will know that you will know that the people who don't ignore you, who don't avoid you or pretend that everything is fine, show that they love you by their presence in your pain. God in Christ on the cross is God with us in our pain, demonstrating his love. But there's more to it than that. You see, there's an honesty in God's love for us in Jesus. There's no pretense that we're perfect, that we're unblemished, or that we're without pain and brokenness ourselves. There's no pressure to perform, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to push on towards being slightly better or making ourselves more lovable. No, there is a searing honesty in God on the cross because that death tells us that we need a saviour, that we are hurt, that we are imperfect and that he has come to meet us as we actually are, to forgive us, to offer us his grace and love through that sacrifice. So whoever you are here this morning, Whatever the pain you carry today, whatever questions you wrestle with, I commend to you a loving God whose love is not just idealistic or mythological, but whose love is real, enfleshed, demonstrated in our material, physical world. 
The God of love, whose love is so real that he was prepared to enter history for you and I. A God who endured enormous human pain himself on behalf of us even to death. A God who pours out his love and offers us forgiveness and new life and a new start, requiring nothing from us other than honesty. Honesty that we need him. Honesty that we want him in our lives. An open heart, ready to receive that grace poured out in that moment of crucifixion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I open my heart to you today, hiding nothing and acknowledging my need for you, the Saviour. Thank you for the way that you have loved me, willingly embracing suffering for me, carrying me through the pain of this life. And today, I ask you, will you once again pour that love into my heart, into each heart here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. Yes, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the two robbers crucified with him heaped insults on him. Now from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and he got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah saves him. And when Jesus had again cried out in a loud voice, (sighs) he gave up his spirit. In this final meditation together, we're going to reflect on those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Sometimes these words of Jesus from the cross have been interpreted as if there was some kind of break in the Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that as Jesus dies, there must be some kind of contradiction within God. After all, how could God die? This is only a problem if you understand death as atheists do, as ceasing to exist. But in the Bible, death is a consequence of sin and it's a state of existence. In the Bible, death is kind of mirrored by this this physical darkness, which we see covering the land as Jesus dies, signifying spiritual death, which all of us experience without Christ. In taking on himself being forsaken by the Father, Jesus suffers the consequences of our brokenness, our darkness, our sin for us. He takes the sins of the world upon himself as prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. The prophet Isaiah wrote, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. This cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of desolation from the cross is a reminder that Jesus' death is much more than a sad footnote in history because he was being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This is the death that would bring all of humanity life. But to really reflect on this line that Jesus speaks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We would need to read Psalm 22, a psalm written by King David, And in the Jewish culture, when someone quoted the first line of a psalm, everybody knew that that meant they were invoking the whole psalm. A little bit like if you were to say the first line of a popular song today, most people would know the rest of the words as they follow on. So as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 verse 1 and he's drawing our attention, not just the attention of those gathered at the cross, but our attention today to that psalm, to the fact that his specific suffering on the cross is prophesied over a thousand years earlier. The very means of his death, the very details of his hands and feet being pierced, of people casting lots over his, over his clothing, demonstrate that the accuracy of David's prophecy is extraordinary. You see, Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a cry of desolation, revealing the sacrificial nature of the death. But it is also a cry of explanation. Even as he dies, he is showing us how and why this had to happen. The opening verse of Psalm 21, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning? But the psalm goes on in verse 6 to depict specifically the details of Jesus' crucifixion. It says in verse 6, he is despised and rejected 
and mocked. Psalm 22 verse 8 says that people will say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, exactly as we heard the religious authorities hurling their insults at Jesus. Psalm 22 verse 14 speaks of being poured out like water, bones out of joint, and a heart turning to wax. This is exactly what happened at crucifixion, bones coming out of joint, and the crucified man feeling as if he were drowning. Verse 15 of Psalm 22 speaks, prophesies of strength disappearing and having a dried up and thirsty mouth. Exactly the experience of the crucified man. Verse 16 of Psalm 22, over a thousand years earlier than Jesus' crucifixion, speaks of dogs surrounding him, evil men encircling him and piercing the hands and the feet. On the basis of the writings of the Greek author Herodotus, it seems that it was the Persians who were the first to invent crucifixion. Alexander the Great then picked it up and used it, and the Romans learned it from the Greeks. But here, in this Psalm of David, prophesied long before the Persians came to power, long before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution, here in Scripture, the very details of the death of the Messiah prophesied. Verse 18 of Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Matthew had already detailed this happening. As Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His Jewish hearers would have understood and known the rest of the psalm. They would have understood that by shouting out that first phrase, he was invoking the entire psalm. By quoting the psalm, it's as if Jesus is shouting to all the world, see, what is happening to me was written about long ago, and not just in vague terms, in absolute detail. This is not a hopeless cry from the cross. We read on in Psalm 22 verse 24 that God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to the cry for help. And then the psalm goes on that all the ends of the earth will remember and will turn to the Lord because of what has happened extraordinary. The psalm ends in hope and the promise that future generations will worship God precisely because of this suffering. Jesus is forsaken for us. He carries the penalty of sin. His death is for us. And even in the midst of his agony and desolation, he is pointing forward to the hope of his resurrection, to Easter Sunday. The cry of desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is at the same time a cry of defiance. This death will not be a sad footnote in history. This death is not about the unfortunate demise of a morally decent person. This death is the death of God for us, giving us life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Underlines the enormity, the significance, the fact that this 
has been prophesied. The desolation of sacrifice, but also the defiance of death. Death is not the end. That's the first cry we see Matthew telling us about. The second cry at the moment as Jesus actually dies, at the moment as he lays down his life, as he gives up his spirit, is that the temple curtain is ripped in half from top to bottom. This was the barrier separating the holy place from the holy of holies. This was the place of God's presence on earth where no one could go and live. Now this was no sort of thin net curtain, you know, a lacy affair, rather easy to tear. It took an extraordinary effort for that tearing to happen. One scholar writes, the veil before the most holy place, the veils were 40 cubits, that's 60 feet long and 30 feet wide of the thickness of the palm of a hand, four inches, and wrought in 72 squares. And they were joined together. These veils were so heavy that in the exaggerated language, language of the time, it required 300 priests to manipulate, to move the veil. At the moment of Jesus's death, as he cries out, the physical barrier that represents the division between God's holy presence and all people is literally broken. Jesus's death opens the way for us to enter that holy place and live for us to know God. That work of bringing an end to the separation between us and God is done. It's complete. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew concludes um, this account with a short phrase. He says, when the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely He is the Son of God. Surely. The centurion, an expert in death and certainly in execution by crucifixion, concluded that amongst the hundreds and thousands of crucifixions that he had witnessed and participated in, that this death was unlike any other, because this man was unlike any other. This centurion, who was experienced in crucifixion, recognized the uniqueness of this event, and he concluded that in his opinion, Jesus is the Son of God. That's the third cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of desolation, but also a cry of defiance and explanation. The cry of the temple curtain being ripped. The barrier between us and God being broken. And finally, the conclusion. Surely, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. On this Good Friday, Lord, we too bow before the Lord Jesus. We remember your death with deep thankfulness and we willingly acknowledge, like that centurion, that surely you are the Son of God. We thank you that through your death, that curtain, that barrier between us between you and us, that that is rent, that it is broken open. 
and we receive that forgiveness and love that you offer us, given at such tremendous cost. Amen.